Thank you for that prayer, and thank you, Betsy, for the music. So, good morning, sisters. I'm feeling a little, a lot better. I got the flu a couple weeks ago, and I'm something still hanging on. Actually, um, Cynthia always says she sounds like she has a cold. I probably sound a little like Cynthia today. I thought if, if I talked really fast, and I just mumbled the way I normally do, that some of the listeners who put podcasts would wonder, is that Rebecca, is that Cynthia, or is that Kelly? So I feel like I'm going to be all three today. But it's good to be with you. Um, we, we try and have some, some laughs as well as some spirituality today, but I have to admit it's pretty hard to have any laughs on this topic today. It's, it's a fairly somber um, situation that we're in right now in the Book of Mormon. And Cynthia talked last week about an event that um, was horrific, and so we're going to kind of start from there on Mormon 7 through 9. And these chapters we'll read today come from Mormon and from his son Moroni. Um, so Mormon was given the responsibility for the plates from 321 AD and actually got them 14 years later in 335. And he died at about 385 AD, and so he labored on the plates for about 50 years. So Moroni got the plates in 385 AD and completed his record in 421 AD, 36 years. So Moroni, was, Moroni will remain alone for about 35 years. So between these two, they had the responsibility for records for 100 years. And they worked on them for about 86 years. So. Um, so much effort and so much um, prayer into comprising something that we are able to glean from today from the Lord. So last week, Cynthia ended with the historical event of all of Lehi's people and the greatest slaughter ever of 230,000 people in one day on the Hill Cumorah with men, women, and children who fell to the Lamanites. So Mormon, while wounded, was spared, as well as 24 other people. He had pleaded with the people to repent and be baptized, but no one listened. And in chapter 5, verse 2, he was, in quote, without hope prior to this battle. So one of the groups, mostly comprised of 10,000 people of each of these groups that came to battle, one of them was led by Moroni, and Moroni's life was spared as well. So think of your frame of mind after this horrific tragedy. A man of God would have such a different perspective with experiencing such an event. So Moroni 7, Moroni, we'll start there. Mormons, sorry, not Moroni, Mormon. I know I'm going to get these two mixed up today. You know what I mean if I say it, okay? Mormon 7 sends several messages to the Latter-day Lamanites and the remnant of his people. So in verse 2, we start, Know ye that ye are of the house of Israel. This is the first thing he talks about. All of the promises made to the great patriarchs of old are promises that flow to their offspring, including the Lamanites. And we've learned about this about a month ago. So why is it important for us to know that we are of the house of Israel? So correct sense of identity is essential to proper behavior. How does it affect our behavior if we know that we are inheritors of the blessings promised by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, if we know we are recipients to these blessings, we don't want to lose those blessings, and they provide us hope through hard times. 
So you must repent, Mormon teaches, or you cannot be saved. In, in verse 3, know ye, this is now verse 4, know ye that you must lay down your weapons of war and delight no more in the shedding of blood and take them not again, save it be that God shall command you. So why would Mormon deliver this message to the Lamanites of the latter days? Well, Brother Beardall says it may be part of the repentance process. Mormon may be reflecting on the history of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and the difference it made in their spiritual lives and in their eternal destiny. Our modern world is a world with weapons of mass destruction and having seen the annihilation of his own civilization, he knew what the spirit of hate and war can do to man. Consider how hardened the Nephites became. So Mormon continues in verse five, know ye that ye must come to the knowledge of your fathers and repent of all your sins and iniquities and believe in Jesus Christ that he is the son of God and that he was slain by the Jews and by the power of the father he hath risen again whereby he hath gained the victory over the grave and also in him is the sting of the death swallowed up. So in speaking to the Latter-day Lamanites, Moroni gives Moroni Get, sorry, Mormon gives additional emphasis to having a knowledge of their heritage and coming to repentance. He adds that they must believe in Christ and the power of his sacrifice. In verse 7, Mormon reminds them that Christ brought to pass the redemption of the world through the atonement of him. And in verses 8 through 10, in Mormon 7, 8 through 10, what is Mormon teaching about the purpose of the Book of Mormon? A brief slide that shows it teaches the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It testifies of the Bible. It teaches the Lamanites that they are a remnant of the seed of Jacob and that they may partake of the covenant. A quote from George Albert Smith says, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we bear. It is the desire to save the souls of the children of men that burns in our hearts. It is not that we may build ourselves up and become a mighty people financially. It is not that we may have our names glorified in the earth for our accomplishments, but it is that the sons and daughters of God, wherever they may be, may hear this gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe and obey its precepts. And those who believe will follow the pattern given by the Savior when he said to his disciples, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So consider in, in verse 9, For behold, this, is the, this meaning the Book of Mormon is written for the intent that ye may believe that, the Bible, and if ye believe that ye will believe this also, and if ye believe this, ye will know concerning your fathers and also the marvelous works which were wrought by the power of God among them. So Mormon's telling us that those who truly believe in Bible and the Bible will also believe in the record or the Book of Mormon. President Brigham Young said, no man can say that this book, laying his hands on the Bible, is true, and at the same time say that the Book of Mormon is untrue. There is not that person on the face of the earth who has had the privilege of learning the gospel of Jesus Christ from these two books that can say that one is true and the other is false. No Latter-day Saint, no man or woman can say the Book of Mormon is true and at the same time say that the Bible is untrue. If one be true, both are. Brother McConkie said in this connection, 
It is worthy of note that anyone who believes the Bible will also believe the Book of Mormon. The great problem in this, the sectarian world is that people have the Bible but neither understand nor believe it except in a casual and superficial way. And they know about Christ but neither accept nor believe in him in the full sense required to attain salvation with him and his father. If you remember the phrase um, uh, underneath the Book of Mormon, the phrase was added, the subtitle, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Does anyone remember what year that took place? I don't remember. I didn't know. Sorry? It was 82. In General Conference in 1986, then-President Ezra Taft Benson explained that it was added to aid in focusing the efforts of the church to more fully utilize the Book of Mormon in general and specifically to utilize it in testifying of Christ. Brother Packard says, the subtitle clarifies the Book of Mormon's place among scriptures. He said in an interview at that time, the Book of Mormon has been misunderstood. With the subtitle, it takes its place where it should be beside the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a, a, a talk given by Adele and H. Oaks called Another Testament of Jesus Christ in June of 1993. And he refers to a meeting in the temple with President Benson, him and the other general authorities. So President Benson had been stressing the reading of the Book of Mormon. President Benson said, in our day, the Lord has inspired his servant to re-emphasize the Book of Mormon to get the church out from under condemnation. So Elder Oaks talks about how, how concerned he was with that and maybe didn't even fully understand what he meant. So he looked up what, the, what it meant, what condemnation meant. It refers to a punishment or a penalty, not a permanent banishment. In his many messages about the Book of Mormon, President Benson has taught us that the major significance of the Book of Mormon is its witness of Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God and the eternal Father who redeems and saves us from the death and sin. Of related and equal importance is, is its explanation of our Savior's atonement, which is the most fundamental doctrine of our faith. So as a church or households, are we still under condemnation? Are we using the Book of Mormon to its fullest potential. I remember when I was in my first area on my mission in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, and um, the branch president, he was, a, he was a great man. He was from um, Jamaica, and in his very strong Jamaican accent, he would express to me how angry he was because within Charlottetown, there was a kind of a Christian, I think they called it the Christian Society, and each of the clergymen from the, the different sects within the, the city or the province would get together on a regular basis and you had to be a Christian and they would not allow him to participate in the meetings because they said the Mormons were not Christian. And he was so mad because he said, look right here, it says in our own title that we are the Church of Jesus Christ and that we worship Christ. And so for whatever reason, I, I'm sure today that they, we are now allowed to participate in this Christian society, but back then, um, he was really frustrated, you can imagine. As a missionary, we were frustrated too. Brother Edgley, as a member of the presidency, Bishopric said, to those who wonder how Christ fits into our theology and our personal lives, we testify that Christ is the redeemer of the world. He is our Lord, our light, and our savior. 
He was ordained from on high to descend below all, to suffer above all. He is the focus of all that we teach and all we do. As a church, we are individual Christians trying to prove our discipleship to the Savior. It is not an institutional matter, it is a personal matter. So how can we tell if Jesus Christ is the focus of our life? And how could you do, or sorry, what could you do to make him more of a focus of your life? So Mormon 8. Moroni remained alive to finish the record of his father and the authors in, he authors chapters 8 and 9. So now this is Moroni. <laughs> Original intent uh, to write a few things in 8.1, you can see that it was really just his intent to just write a few more things. But he was restricted for a couple reasons. One, there was no room on the current plates, and there was no ore for him to comprise more plates to write in. But he found, obviously, more ore later because he was able to write about ether, and also he wrote Moroni that we learn in, in verse 5. So taking place in AD 400 to 421, we know from the final pages of the Book of Mormon that he lived at least another 21 years. The only other family mentioned with Moroni is his father. We don't know anything about his mother's name, if he had siblings, or if he was even married. In 937, Moroni 937, it appears that he's saying goodbye, and also in Ether 1534 and in Moroni 1-1. So this poor man was writing and didn't really know when he was going to die, and so he just kept writing thinking this was the last time. Um, how lucky the disciples were, wasn't it, when I taught last month that they were going to pass away at 72 or 75, so it'd be kind of nice to know. Elder Holland mentioned that Moroni's experience was painful for he observed in life, in history, and in vision the pollution and destruction of three glorious civilizations, his own Nephite world, the Jaredite nation, and our latter-day dispensation, because of course Moroni could see ahead to what would happen so behold, in verse 1, I, Moroni, do finish the record of my father, Mormon. Behold, I have but a few things to write, which things I have been commanded by my father. So Moroni takes the record of his father to add a few things as he's been commanded. So what were Mormon, Moroni's circumstances at that time? Moroni writes that the Nephites um, that had escaped to the south, remember the 24 we talked about, the south country were hunted by the Lamanites until they were killed. So it's not enough to killed 230,000, but they also sought those as well. He says that his father Mormon had been killed and he was left wandering, or sorry, wondering if he would be hunted down and killed in verse three. So Moroni was completely alone. In verse five, my father hath been slain in battle and all my kinsfolk and I have not friends nor whither to go and how long the Lord will suffer that I may live, I know not. You know, um, loneliness is a horrible thing, and I, I feel like, I think there are people today who, who do indeed feel that lonely, and while they can, maybe can't justify that based on how Moroni's experience was, there are so many lonely people, and whether they feel that way through a mental illness or through bad choices they've made or other people around them, but the Lord knows their loneliness. Even after the fall of the Nephi nation, the Lamanites remained at war with one another, and the whole face of this land is one continual round of murder and bloodshed. In verse 8, we read. 
So it's a horrible time. So it's not enough that you kill the other team, but then you kill each other on your team. So everyone's killing everyone. Um, President Hinckley said, who can sense the depth of his pain, the poignant loneliness that constantly overshadowed him as he moved about, a fugitive relentlessly hunted by his enemies. For how long he actually was alone, we do not know, but the record would indicate that it was for a considerable period. His conversation was prayer to the Lord. His companion was the Holy Spirit. There were occasions when the three Nephites ministered to him, but with all of this, there is an element of terrible tragedy in the life of this man who became a lonely wanderer. In verse 10, there are no believers in the land except for the three Nephites, and they did not remain among the people because of their wickedness. In 11, but behold, my father and I have seen them, meaning the three, the three Nephites, and they have ministered unto us. Moroni writes about the Book of Mormon in verse 14, and I am the same who hideth up this record unto the Lord. He says, for he truly saith that no one shall have them to get gain, talking about the, the plates. And in 16, it shall be brought out of the earth, and it shall shine forth out of darkness, and come unto the knowledge of the people, and it shall be done by the power of God. So a testament of what the Book of Mormon is and how it will come about, and we've seen that. One would assume that many of the ancient prophets were aware of Joseph Smith and prayed for his success to translate the gold plates and fulfilling the purpose of God. Think about that. But Moroni has a very strict warning in verse 17 through 21. For those that are critical of the writings of the Book of Mormon, he said, excuse me, be careful how you judge. It's a translation of the originals of which man wrote. It's sacred literature that may have imperf imperfect forms of speech or delivery, but be very careful about what you say about it. A direct prophecy by Mormon regarding those who would try to force Joseph Smith to show them the plates or take them from him. He says in verse 18, he that saith, show unto me or ye shall be smitten, let him be beware lest he commanded, sorry, that which is forbidden of the Lord. And 20, behold, what the scripture says, man shall not smite, neither shall he judge, for judgment is mine, saith the Lord, and vengeance is mine also, and I will repay. In verse 23, reconfirming how important the prophecies of Isaiah are. We are admonished by Brother McConkie in saying that it just may be that our salvation depends on our ability to understand the writings of Isaiah. And that's reinforced in verse 23. So if you, like Mormon, were a lone survivor of your civilization and were being hunted by enemies who wanted to kill you, what would you do to maintain your faith and hope? I couldn't find any current illustration today to compare that to at all. But it made me think about how we can maintain faith and hope as we face difficulties today. How is your communication with your Heavenly Father? At what point will it be harder and harder to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Utah and outside of Utah? When I was in high school, um, there was about 2,000 students, and I think there were six Mormons. And I wasn't even a Mormon then, so I didn't have the excuse that I didn't drink or 
didn't do some of those things because I was a Mormon. But certainly there's tremendous pressure and, and our children as well as adults will see in the coming years even more pressure than they have now. It's a scary time. We are told what will happen when the Book of Mormon comes forth in verses 26 through 31 in 8. It says, people will say that there are no miracles, that there will be secret combinations, that the power of God will be denied, the churches shall become defiled and lifted up in pride, that leaders and teachers of churches shall be lifted up in the pride of their hearts, and the people will hear of fires and tempests and vapors of smoke in foreign lands. There will be great pollution on the face of the earth. There will be plastic straws. No, I'm just kidding. There will be all manner of abominations. Churches will forgive sins for money. So with time and space, each of these could be illustrated with accounts from the time of the restoration to the present. We can certainly list many of the things that have happened. But I liked um, Brother Gibbons, who I take some of my things from, said he had an inter interesting perspective. He says, we compare ourselves to previous ages. We have an inclination to congratulate ourselves on how far we have come from those dark days. Caesar took a horse-drawn carriage to his coronation. So did George Washington in his inauguration. But in the years since then, technology has revolutionized the way we live. The richest men of ages past had nothing to compare to the things we accept without a blink. Cars and planes and computers and rockets and movies and television and medical marvels, the list seems interminable. Look at Moroni's writings, not a word about supercomputers or jets or space shuttles. He just talks about sins and churches and angels and spiritual gifts and faith and hope and charity. Perhaps the greatest gift a prophet has is the ability to know the things that matter eternally and to ignore those that don't. But the Book of Mormon prophets who saw our day mentioned none of these things. Some Old Testament prophets seem to speak of our technology, but it does not happen in the Book of Mormon. Look at the list above prepared by Moroni to describe the conditions of our day. Like Nephi and Alma and the Savior, his entire focus seems to be on those things that will prevent us from getting back to the presence of the Father. Moroni is interested in saving souls, not in colonizing Mars. So he writes in um, 8, 34 through 36. I'm just going to read a few lines. And I know that you do walk in the pride of your hearts, have become polluted because of the pride of your hearts. In Moroni 34 through 36. President Benson says, once we realize how the Lord feels about this book, it should not be surprise us that he has also given us solemn warnings about how we receive it after indicating that those who receive the Book of Mormon with faith, working righteousness, will receive a crown of eternal glory. The Lord follows with this warning, but those who harden their hearts in unbelief and reject it, it shall turn to their own condemnation. Brother McConkie says, now I think it is perfectly clear that the Lord expects far more of us than we sometimes render in response. We are not as other men or women, we are the saints of God and have the revelations of heaven. Where much is given, much is expected. We are to put first in our lives the things of his kingdom. So we need to cleanse ourselves from spiritual pollution, as Mormon talks about in verses 36 through 38. Um, in the essence of time, I'm going to 
keep going here. Uh, so I, I thought of a modern example of pollution today that's um, very evident in headlines. And it might be the college scam that just went down last Tuesday when at least two famous actresses were caught paying large sums of money to improve test scores and get college sports coaches to make up bogus athletic scholarships to guarantee their daughter's college entrance. Is that a pollutant? I would think so. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. Unfortunately, after a couple of years, I think I'm telling the same story, so sorry. But I, I worked for a company, um, and the owner of the company was this compulsive liar. I think I mentioned her. And in the end, I had to leave the company um, and sue because they were taking my 401k money. I was depositing money in every month. And after a year, I went in and um, found that I just had one payment in there. I didn't have 12 because the company was supposed to match after that first year. So I approached the owner and the HR person and two or three of the management, and they all knew about it, but they didn't say anything. And so it was kind of a, an awkward situation, needless to say. But the woman of the company was, um, she just lied about everything. I mean, it, that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But it was interesting that just little things, we were at lunch one day, I hope I haven't told this story, but we were at lunch one day and we were with her mother and it was her birthday. And then we were, and I was with another coworker and we thought we'd take to lunch for her birthday. And um, one of the coworkers said, well, how old are you, so-and-so? And she said, I'm 37. And her mother said, no, you're not, you're 38. And I said, well, if you're gonna lie about your age, don't just do one year. I mean, what is that? One year? But that's how she is. She lied about everything. She lied about when the paychecks were coming and, and would lie about things that I needed for work to be successful. But, um, but how easy it was for her that I think she really did believe that she was a year younger, even though her mother reminded her that she wasn't. But um, we see this a lot, and we see, we'll continue to see this as, as we're counseled about this, about the pollutant and um, pollution in, in today in society. Joseph Smith said, those who know their weaknesses and liability to sin would be in constant doubt of salvation if it were not for the idea that which they have of the excellency of God, that he is slow to anger and long-suffering and of, of a forgiving disposition and does forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. An idea of these facts does away doubt and makes faith exceedingly strong. Joseph Smith said, a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary to lead unto life and salvation. So if they saw our day and chose those things which would be of greatest worth, this is President Benson, to us, it is not that how we should study the Book of Mormon, we should constantly ask ourselves, why did the Lord inspire Mormon or Moroni or Alma to include that in his record? What lesson can I learn from that to help me live in this day and age? So doesn't it feel that each year it gets harder and harder to maintain our standards and our principles and how we have to remind our children of how, where the bar is, that it's not, because it gets lower every year and you have to remind them. My son is always saying, I don't fit in. He's just so insecure. And I just keep reminding him, well, Joseph Smith didn't fit in either. You know, the Christ didn't fit in either. That it's hard to maintain those standards. 
39, why do ye adorn yourselves with that which hath no life, and yet suffer the hungry and the needy and the naked and the sick and the afflicted to pass by you and notice them not? So it's a reminder, we're constantly reminded to minister to the hungry and the needy. And what principles in your home need to be more firmly established to fulfill that need? Now we're to Mormon 9. Moroni writes to those who do not believe in Christ in chapter 9, and he takes them, sorry, he asks them a question. Keep in mind, he thinks this is the last chapter. Behold, this is in verse 2, Behold, will you believe in the day of your visitation? Behold, when the Lord shall come, yea, even the great day when the earth shall be rolled together as a scroll, and the element shall melt with fervent heat, yea, in that great day when ye shall be brought to stand before the Lamb of God. Then will you say that there is no God? So if you're a non-believer, would this question even affect you? I mean, if you think about that. It's hard to believe that someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 3, Then all ye longer deny the Christ, sorry, then will ye longer deny the Christ, or can you behold the Lamb of God? Do you suppose that you shall dwell with him under a consciousness of your guilt? Do you suppose that you could be happy to dwell with that holy being when your souls are racked with the consciousness of guilt that you have ever abused his laws? So here's what many don't know. Behold, I say unto you that you would be more miserable to dwell with a holy and just God under a consciousness of your filthiness before him than you would to dwell with the damned souls in hell. So, I mean, many people just assume that, well, the God is an all-loving, all-accepting God, and why wouldn't I feel welcome in his presence? Joseph Fielding Smith said, there can be no salvation without repentance, and man cannot enter into the kingdom of God in his sins. It would be a very inconsistent thing for a man to come into the presence of the Father and to dwell in God's presence in his sins. He continues, I think there are a great many people upon the earth, many of them perhaps in the church, at least some in the church, who have an idea that they can go through life doing as they please, violating the commandments of the Lord, and yet eventually they are going to come into his presence. They think they are going to repent, perhaps in the spirit world. Elder Lorenzo Snow said, Who was then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve? God loves his offspring, the human family. He loves them all, and his plans are for the salvation of the whole. And he will bring all up into this position in which they will be as happy and as comfortable as they are willing to be. So pleading with the believers... In verse 6, sorry, with the unbelievers in verse 6, O then, ye unbelieving, turn ye unto the Lord. Cry or pray mightily unto the Father in the name of Jesus, that perhaps you may be found spotless, pure, fair, and white, having been cleansed by the blood of the, of the Lamb at the great and last day. So should the unbelievers not comply with the Lord and deny revelations of God and gifts and healings or speaking with tongues outlined in verse 7? In verse 8, he says, Behold, I say unto you, he that denieth these things knoweth not the gospel of Christ. Yea, he has not read the scriptures, or if so, he does not understand them. So Moroni testifies in verse 9, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Bruce R. McConkie says, a holy being who was God yesterday remains a God today and will continue in the same exalted state tomorrow. The course of God is one eternal round. It does not vary. They are not, sorry, they are now as they were then, and they shall yet be as they ever have been. If it were not so, they would not be exalted, for exaltation consists in being the same unchangeable being from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, President, or sorry, Marvin J. Ashton gave a, a wonderful talk called A Pattern in All Things in 1990. And I'll just briefly describe it, but I actually printed it off to go over with my children this week. I thought it was a great comparison about how important it is to have this pattern that um, our Heavenly Father has given us to follow. But he, he relates where he took a, a bumpy plane ride. He said, a seasoned pilot gave me comfort once after much such an experience when he talked about a landing pattern, the ordered flight path of an aircraft about to touch down, precise instruments, experience, and trust guide the planes to safety en route and through proper landing and takeoff. And so that there is a pattern so that we can land safely. He asked a woman how, how wonderful her quilts were, and he asked her, do you ever make one of these quilts without a pattern? And she said, well, how would I know how it might turn out if I didn't have a pattern to follow? And so Elder Ashton goes on to say, one of Satan's most intriguing traps among many of God's children today seems to be a trend to postpone taking on mature personal responsibilities such as avoiding marriage because of the possibility of divorce and becoming involved in the drug culture because life is so uncertain. There are segments of our population that march, protest, and demand handouts and cures rather than follow God's given rules of prevention and self-discipline. Following revealed patterns helps us to recognize our weaknesses, deal positively with them, overcome them, and rise to Christ-like heights. And this was in 1990 can certainly be applicable more today even. Besides patterns of prayer, we have direction for pondering procedure, patience, action, and integrity. I found an article on Sunday titled, What the College Admissions Scandal Reveals About Most Families. Let me make sure I've left enough time here. And uh, in the article, it, it gave... Um, it says uh, it talked about, well, it talked about a lot of things, but it talked about this, the fast, slow generation. In other words, that age 28 now feels like the new 18, that we have teenagers that are extremely stressed about the future. And um, as a result of these shifts and the anxiety that they're receiving, that um, sociologists monitor five key adult events they are leaving home, finishing school, becoming financially independent, getting married, and having children, but they're reporting a dip in the number of 30-year-olds who have attained all five of these markers. So in 1960, more than two-thirds of young adults could check all five of these boxes off by the age of 30. In 2000, this was true of less than half of females and less than a third of males. So we're 19 years later. Imagine what the statistic is. But the, the gist, what I took of the article, was they talked about how important it was to talk to your children, and that they used the phrase, tell me more. In other words, that we're asking our children, how was your day, and they're really good about giving a one-word answer. It was okay. 
and you, sometimes you have to dig and then they feel like you're digging too much. And so how important it was to ask the child to tell me more can open up conversational doors that otherwise remain locked tight. So, well, we have this council within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. To the average person out there, I think there's a lot of people that don't really know how to handle their teenager and the perspective we have. So this brings me to my next um, topic we'll talk a little bit about, and that is that in Mormon 9, 10, and 11, and now if ye have imagined up unto yourselves a God who doth vary and in whom there is shadow of changing, then have you imagined up unto yourselves a God who is not a God of miracles. But behold, I will show unto you a God of miracles, even the God of Abraham and a God of Isaac and a God of Jacob. And it is that same God who created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are. So I wanted to at least try and end on a positive note and talk a little bit about miracles. We can look around and see some of God's miracles whether it be the birth of a baby or the creation of earth, or the restoration of the gospel, or even our patriarchal blessing. We do live in a day when multitudes do not believe in miracles, even when those who believe in God often believe in one who is not directly involved with uh, the miracle, that it's more of just a coincidence. In verse 20, why do miracles cease? And the reason why we, he ceaseth to do miracles among the children of men is because they dwindle in unbelief and depart from the right way and know not the God in whom they should trust. So what must we do to have miracles in our lives? In verse 21, behold, I say unto you that whosoever believeth in Christ, doubting nothing whatsoever, he shall ask the Father in the name of Christ, it shall be granted him. And this promise is unto all, even unto the ends of the earth. Bruce Hummer Conkey said, It is by faith that miracles are wrought, not faith as an abstract, unembodied, vaporous nothingness floating like a fog in the universe, but faith in the living Lord, faith centered in Christ, our head. The eternal law is, Whoso believeth in Christ, doubting nothing whatsoever, he shall ask the Father in the name of Christ, it shall be granted him. And this promise is unto all even unto the ends of the earth. According, any person who has ever performed a miracle in any age has done it by faith in Christ. For the past, at the present, and in the future, all miracles are wrought by faith in the Lord who is Christ. So what, does, what did he teach to show that the Lord is a God of miracles? In verses um, nine, 11, sorry, chapter 9, 11 through 17, a few things I summarized in here. It says, the creation of the heavens, the earth, and mankind, he mentions in 11, 12, and 17. The fall in verse 12. Redemption through Jesus Christ in 12 and 13. The resurrection of all people in 13. And the return of all people to the Lord's presence to be judged in 9, 13 through 14. Um, Dallin H. Oaks gave a talk in May of 2000 titled Miracles, and he explains where they, where they come from, how they're performed, and types, and the sometimes mirrored deception by Satan. And he says that the, the miracles work by the power of the priesthood, 
and by the power of faith, and some miracles affect many people, like the atonement, and still other miracles is the way missionaries are protected during their labors. In other words, our young men and women are eight times safer in the mission field than the general population of their peers at home. In view of the hazards of missionary labor, this mortality record is nothing less than a miracle. Um, Spencer W. Kimball and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said, we do have miracles today beyond imagination. What kinds of miracles do we have? All kinds, revelations, visions, tongues, healing, special guidance and direction, evil spirits cast out. Where are they recorded? In the records of the church, in journals, and news and magazine articles, and in the minds and memories of many people. Um, Moroni exhorted us to doubt not but be believing in 27. Oh, then despise not and wonder not, but hearken unto the words of the Lord and ask the Father in the name of Jesus for what things soever ye shall stand in need. Doubt not, but be believing and begin as in times of old and come unto the Lord with all your heart and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before him. So Mormonist counsel to Latter-day readers in the slide, verses 27 through 29, important principles within these verses. It says, doubt not, but be believing. Come unto the Lord with all of your heart. Strip yourselves of all your uncleanliness. Pray for the strength to yield to no temptation. Do not be baptized unworthily. Do not partake of the sacrament unworthily. And then endure to the end. All things that um, we are instructed to do on a regular basis. There was a funny story actually that I'll tell quickly and then I'm gonna have, she's not here yet, but I'm gonna have someone talk at the end. Oh, are you here? Oh, you are here, okay. Then I'm not gonna tell the story because I wanna hear you instead. So Laura Nelson, come on up. I'm glad she's told me you're here. It's just like, okay, I'll tell another story. Um, but I asked Laura Nelson today to come up. I thought of Laura for the last couple weeks when I was preparing this lesson and I asked her to come and speak, and she's kind of moved her entire schedule around this morning. She's a, she's a demanded woman um, where she had to sub at her preschool today, and so I asked her to come, come on over. So Laura Nelson is in the first ward on our stake, and um, Laura is married to Frank Nelson, and she has three terrific kids, one that helped me babysit my children this weekend, two married, one engaged recently, and um, if you know the, if you know Laura, there are two things that stand out about Laura to me. First of all, um, well, three. One is that we're soul sisters in sarcasm, but we hope there's a place <laughs> in the heaven for us that there's sarcasm there, or it's going to be boring. But um, that Laura is. Everyone thinks Laura is her best friend, and I can only imagine. I only knew Laura when. She, um, when she, we've been an adult, but I can imagine the playground in like third grade and some girls saying, well, no, Laura's my best friend. No, she's not, she's my best friend. So I can imagine that all these kids fight over Laura because you really feel like you're Laura's best friend. And the other thing about Laura is her, her unwavering faith. And so I had Laura come today because she's had a unique experience and that she's our 
now third time cancer survivor. And it was this time last year that she found out. In fact, um, we were supposed to go to the temple um, one night and we called to tell them we were coming to get them and they said Laura wasn't feeling well. And we, I was like, what? I mean, she has antibodies of steel. She's taught at a preschool <laughs> for like 100 years. So she doesn't get sick. And um, so we went over to see her after and it kind of went down from there. But, um, and please do not share what I said about you. <laughs> this is where my sarcasm gets me. But um, I asked Laura to come up and talk today about her unfailing faith and her experience now. And um, from what I know of Laura and her current medical situation, we as a ward fasted for, for Laura last spring. And um, it's, it, it is nothing but a, a miracle that she's here today, that her life has been spared. So, um, I've asked Laura to share some of her experience. It's one thing to experience seeing miracles, but to actually be a walking, talking miracle is who I wanted to have um, you speak to, to hear about today. So I will have Laura finish, and um, please leave if it does get to 11 to get your kids, and then we'll have a closing prayer. Um, I'm sorry for the people in the first ward. They've had their fill, I'm sure, of listening to me talk, but just for a background, um, years ago when I was a tot, a 34, something like that, I was driving in my car and I heard a voice talk to me like there was someone sitting with me that said, Laura, get a mammogram. And I, you know, thought, I knew I'd recognize it as a prompting, and so I wrote it down on a piece of paper and set it in those piles you have all over your kitchen that you're going to do. Then pretty soon it got buried, and I'd think about it from time to time, but I think, you know, I need to call, I need to take care of that, because I know it was a spiritual prompting, but I had already had a mammogram just months before, and so I knew our insurance wasn't going to be wild about that. And then it got to the point where it would wake me up in the evening many times, just like get a mammogram, get a mammogram. So I, I went in and they said, why are you here? You, you, know, you, you just had a, a mammogram and, and I said, I just feel like I need to get one. And she said, all oh, that happens a lot with you Mormons. <laughs> and so I, I went just by myself one Friday, I had it thought this is, you know, I just started to get dressed and was ready to leave when she's, that she said, is Laura Nielsen still here? And I just went, oh, no. So I, I went back, redid it, I had a biopsy, all that stuff, and um, found that I had cancer. So I had a mastectomy, years and years and years of funny things that happened with my bald head that we don't have time for because she told me your stickler's about 11, so I keep looking at the clock. But anyway, I, um, I felt like we went, you know, I had blood clots. We were in intensive care for 30 days at one point and just had a lot of um, things happen. But I never felt like I wasn't going to live. And I also would never pray what thy will be done. I was just, I just skipped that part while I was praying <laughs> for other things. <laughs> And then I was doing well and thought we, you know, with the help of people in our ward and our family and 
my work, it, it worked out fine, and I thought we were good. And then eight years later, it, Frank, you know, I kept saying, my arm hurts so bad. I feel like I have a big open sore or something on it. But there was nothing there. And then Frank kind of had the feeling that I should go and get something done. We'd been to several doctors and had them feel my arm, and they said it felt like a surgical ridge, so I wasn't worried about it. And and then he came into work one day and said, "Just I, I made an appointment, let's go, just get it done. So my sister-in-law, Kay, right there, her husband is my doctor, so that's kind of nice. You get a little free office visits in the bathroom. But um, we, she told me, the lady said, you know, come, come in and we'll, we'll get you in quickly and we'll just see. So I went in and they were going to check it and she said, you know, I don't, I don't feel it. I think it's nothing, but I can see that you're worried about it, so we'll just do it. And so she did the test and found that there were two tumors in my arm. One was the size of a hot dog bun and the other one was the size of a racquetball. And so I had to have a big, you know, surgery again, hair out again. I used to wear uh, a different shirt every time I went for chemotherapy. It just said, you know, chemo sabi or, you know, hair by Dr. Litton or just something like that. And then when I went to radiation, I wore the same shirt every day because you go 40 days in a row or something like that. And it said, been there, fried that. <laughs> and, but I still felt okay. I never felt like you know, it was the end again. I had the big surgery. We got it all fixed up. We went to get a scan that did my body. And because my brother-in-law is my doctor, he could look at things quicker than other people. So he looked after my PET scan. We weren't even to the parking lot yet. We were just walking out to get in the car. And um, he said, wherever you are, you should kneel down and thank God because I thought I was gonna tell you today that you were full of cancer, and it's just in one spot. And so we did, not in the parking lot, but in the car. We thanked Heavenly Father for doing, giving us another chance, because we had these, you know, when I first got it, my littlest was eight. So they were kind of little, and I didn't want to leave. So then, five years after that, I was just so tired. I, I'd come home and I'd sit in the corner of this sofa and really, if you came to my house, you'd be able to pick which corner it was because I just was like, you know? I'd sit there and didn't have any energy. It was hard for me to breathe. It was hard for me to walk up a stair and I just couldn't figure out what it was. And I'd get out of the shower and think, I was like translucent. It was the weirdest, I didn't have, I, you could see my fingers behind my ear when I'd go like this in the mirror. I just looked weird. And the story that she doesn't want me to tell, that I'll tell you anyway, is we were going to do baptisms, or I mean an initiatory for some family names that they had. And I just thought, there's no way I can stand up three or four times. And you do quite a bit of that at the temple. So I said, we're not well. So I'm sorry that we can't go. And they came over after, and they had two Slurpees. And I think they thought we were throwing up or something. And she said, why do you look like you're in a casket? And I said, what? She said, it's like I'm at your viewing, and you just sat up and started talking. I said, there's something wrong with you. And then just a few days after that, all my coworkers kind of called my husband behind my back, and he came to pick me up. And 
went to the emergency room and then pretty much stayed there for about, well, we stayed there all day and then we went home and we were gonna go first thing Monday morning because they knew that the cancer was back. And, you know, I, th this time scared me more because I had such, you know, your other symptoms and things that happen to you when you have cancer, they're the things that make you sick. The things that make you better are the things that make you sick. But this one, I felt sick. You know, I, I went to work and I got up two stairs and remembered I'd left my purse in the car and I started crying because I thought, I can't make it all the way back there to my car. And it was probably like three benches, you know. <laughs> so I had really decided that I was going to go to the doctor, but I got cut off by my well-meaning friends. And so I was supposed to be at the doctor early on um, in the morning, and then the night before that, I woke my husband up and said, I can feel my spirit leaving my body. You know, I, we can't wait. You know, we need to go right now. So we went early, and I, my body had stopped making blood. And I have no, my liver's full, my you know, kidneys and bone marrow and stuff like that. So this will be the one that is the end for me. But he told me and my children and husband that we had anywhere from four days to four months to live. And I kind of believed it that time because of the way I felt. But we prayed and my primary class in our ward had a big fast and other friends were praying and he came in my doctor came in probably the fifth day in the hospital and said, you know, it, I think some things are, you know, okay. I think they're, you know, they're not right. I think it, there's so many things they test for, but the number that I was supposed to be was 35, and I had something like 9,000 or something like that because my body had stopped making blood. And I know you need a liver to make blood and live, and you need kidneys and your bones and stuff but um, from the minute I had that prayer in our ward until today I feel like the reason that I'm here is because of that I had to quit my job he told me not to get another job because I would pass away before you know the end of the year or that a year would be a miracle that you know, they, they didn't know why it was working as well as it was. And on April 16th, that will be a year for me. And I'm so grateful because I got to see my daughter get married. And now my son's getting married, and that's my goal, to be here for that on May 23rd. And I'm grateful for my Heavenly Father because he is a God of miracles. And... It didn't just happen when he was on the earth, that our husbands and our sons and the people in our ward have the same priesthood as he did and the same one that the priests, that the, your husbands have today. And I know that that's what it was. There was no medical reason for me to be here. There was no intellectual reason that you could make it work, but I feel good and I'm happy to be able to spend more time with my family. But I will say that cancer is the worst, best thing that ever happened to me because I was 
had made, I made kind of a bond with Heavenly Father that has helped me through other things that have happened in my life. And I am grateful for him. I don't know why some people are chosen to have it better than others. My sister died of cancer when she was 34. My mom was accidentally hit by a car by the neighbor and killed 10 days after they told me I had cancer. And I don't know why they left and I'm here. But I have promised him many times that I will serve her for the rest of my life for the extra bit that he gave me that I can be with my family. And I, I love the Lord and his son, God and his son, because they are my mentors and my friend. And the reason that I still am here today, but I want you to know that I'm willing to go to the other side without kicking and screaming. But I appreciate so much, and there isn't a day that goes by that I don't open a closet and think, why do I have so many things? Because when you get down to the end of it, it really is that all you take is your family that is forever, and your friends that are forever. And this gospel and all those great shoes are gonna be in the DI. So. I, my prayer for you is that you would recognize the Holy Ghost and listen to what he says. Because once you learn to do that, you will have miracles in your life and see the miracles that you didn't realize were. And I'm grateful for this gospel. I, I, love, I love it with all my heart. And I feel like it's the reason that I've feel as good as I do now. It's just straight up blessings and prayers. So I'm grateful for this gospel. I know that it is true. And if you could look at your scriptures and spend some time with the Lord and listen to him like you would a friend, he will be your friend. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.